Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. We always appreciate you joining us each and every week. As always, guys, lots to get to before we get to this week's episode, which is an amazing story. Oh, my God. I can't even begin to tell you what's going to happen to you over the course of this episode. Uh, very, very excited to talk to our guest. Remind you guys to get on all the social media sites that we're on, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast, and uh, follow us. Make sure that you're keeping up with everything we have going on here on the podcast, upcoming guests, and things of that nature. Also remind you about our partnership with Amazon. Go to HazardGround.com, the website. Click on that Amazon banner right in the middle of the homepage. Do all your Amazon shopping. We get a percentage of what you guys spend. What do we do with that money? We take it and we donate it back to the charities that you hear on the Hazard Ground Podcast. So, so important for you guys to be part of that partnership. And again, Again, just go to HazardGround.com, click on that Amazon banner, and you can help out vets all across the country from the comfort of your own home. If you like the show, and we know you do, please get on iTunes, leave us a rating and a review. Those are so important to us. We love the feedback. We love hearing from good, bad, and indifferent. But also the rating you know, helps us get more notoriety, helps us grow the podcast, bigger guests, bigger listeners, and everybody gets to hear these amazing stories about America's heroes. So with all that said, let's get on to this week's episode. Joining us this week is a guest with a very unique and peculiar situation. And I use the word peculiar because it's not something that we typically come across here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. He is a current Sergeant First Class and a Green Beret in the United States Army. While he was deployed overseas, after returning, doctors misdiagnosed him and he ended up with stage four lung cancer. And joining us right now is Sergeant First Class Richard Stasekel from the Army. As well joining us is his attorney, Natalie Kawam, and she is here to help provide some legal background as to the pending litigation in Richard's case against the United States government. Richard, Natalie, thank you guys so much for joining us. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. All right, lengthy introduction here, and I just wanted to clear it up for our listeners as to everything that's going on. And the long and short of it is, again, you were misdiagnosed by medical doctors, ended up with lung cancer, and now there is pending litigation for you against the government uh, on your case. And for those listening who aren't military, if you don't know, if you're in the military, you're not allowed to sue the government. So this is a very, and again, that's why I used the word peculiar at the opening, a very peculiar and interesting case, but we want to get to it all and uncover it all. And let's start back at the beginning, Rich, uh, and, and why and how you got into the military. Um, yeah, absolutely. So uh, originally I joined the military. I started off in the Marine Corps in 2001, served in 2005. Uh, 2004, I've been shot in, uh, in combat downrange. I got out, served my country and thought I was done, but, uh, I wasn't, so I joined back up in 2006. Uh, decided to become a Green Beret. Um, went through the process from there and been serving as a Green Beret ever since to, to present time. Now, did you but, sign uh, up in 2001 time. just after 9-11? Was that the reason? No, I had actually signed up right before. I oh, okay. I um, was just looking for something exciting to do in my life and wanted to, you know, wanted to be a part of a brotherhood, wanted to serve my country and, you know, bring, uh, bring real purpose to my life. Wow, that's interesting. So it was—it had nothing to do with nine eleven. You just were, were at the time. Were you done with high school? Were you done with college? Where were you in your life? I was done with high school. Um, just didn't feel like I was ready for college yet. You know, felt there was something different out there for me, and that's where it led me. All right. So when you go into two thousand one, and then nine eleven happens, did you feel like, oh my god, I made a bad decision? No, absolutely not. I, you know, it was like I said. Uh, becoming a part of a brotherhood and uh, serving for, you know, greater purpose other than just yourself. You know, I don't ever feel that that's ever something you'd feel bad about, you know, or something you wish you had done differently. So um, it's just a, it was a great thing that I wanted to do to serve my country. Why the Marines? Um, honestly, it just, I, I was there, I was actually going to join the Air Force, believe it or not. And uh, when I was walking into the recruiting office one day, there was a Marine there. He, uh, he was standing there in his dress blues and, just started talking to me and the more i was looking at it, i was just like man that's a that's a really nice uniform and you know the way he was talking about the the Marine Corps just really sounded like it fit fit me as a person at the time in my life all right so let's go back to that deployment in 2004 um where you're in in ramadi uh and you get shot by a sniper 
Um, take yes, me sir. through the events of that day. Was it a normal morning? Uh, what were you guys doing? Where were you going? So on and so forth. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was a normal morning, just out on patrols. And, um, I was with a part of the snipers at the time, so I was. Uh, we were out just kind of hiding out and checking things, make sure everything was good. And then uh, slowly, uh, you know, as things do, they just erupted over time, and we just ended up in a in a fierce fight. And uh, in the midst of it, I was actually uh, I was shot by a sniper through uh, my left arm, went through my chest, and came out my back next to my spine. Uh, there I was better backed out from there uh, and inadvertently through the time I was uh, it was a, a Green Beret medic who put my chest tube in and uh, that's actually the short of how I ended up where I'm at today was uh, wanting to pay back the service to somebody who saved me. All right. Well, okay. So you talk about that very nonchalant as if getting shot <laughs> through the chest is going to pick up milk at the grocery store. Let's back up here for a minute. Did you see, did you know what happened when it happened? I mean, obviously you didn't see the sniper. That's why he's a sniper. But, I mean, kind of give me some more background as to what the actual events were. Um, so we, we were sitting across by a river just watching the roads. Um, when the when everything started fighting, we or everybody started fighting, we just we pushed across the road into an open air uh, field. And during that time, we were kind of getting spread out and, we had seen the sniper off to the left a little bit. Uh, there was just single shots going off. And before I knew it, I, you know, I woke up on the ground. I didn't have a clue what had happened. Um, and just kind of as everything came to, uh, you know, my sound started coming back. And I, I finally was, you know, coming from being dazed and confused. Uh, you know, I just realized like, oh, man, I, I think I was hurt. Uh, didn't really click in until the, the corpsman had run over and was, trying to provide a little bit of aid to me that I'd realized I'd been hurt at the time. So, so I mean, I, I ask about the, what's it like getting shot. You don't even know the feeling. You just, next thing you know, you woke up, you were on the ground. Um, well, when my feeling came to you, the best I could describe, it felt like a, I was hit, was hit by a train. It was the best thing. I <laughs> yeah. mean, it, it, it knocked me down. And when the pain finally came, it was, it was some of the most unbearable stuff I'd, uh, I could uh, imagine a person could go through. That's unreal. So did, did you know you were shot or did you just know you were injured or what? No, I, I had no clue. I just knew um, at the time the corpsman was just like, hey, you're bleeding from one spot. We could, you could only find one spot. Um, but that was my exit where, but I, I knew I was hurt. I just didn't know. I didn't know how bad. I didn't know what, what had happened. I didn't know if it was something exploded or if it was a gunshot. And, and I think that's probably why I talk about it a little nonchalant was, some of it was so surreal, you know, right. that it, it, even to this day, I kind of think back and I'm like, wait, did that really happen? And so it's, it was, uh, you know, not like the movies, that's for sure. Yeah. I, I, did, Rich, did you think you were going to die? I didn't know what to think at the time, except for there was still stuff to be done. I, I remember thinking, you know, people were, st- I, I knew people were still fighting. I could see my friends running around, you know, and still being engaged. Um, so, I mean, I knew as much as I, I do remember, I kind of propped my gun up on the magazine well, and I fired off what last rounds I had in the direction of where I knew people were. Um, you know, I just, I knew there was stuff still going on, but didn't, couldn't tell you how long it was going to last or what the next move was. Just kind of played it by ear as it went. At what point in time do you realize that, oh, this is bad. I, I, I mean, you know, there, there's, there's something really wrong here. You know, I, I knew, like I said, I, I knew I was hurt, but I don't know. I didn't know. I didn't know how bad, you know? So I, and I think that between that and the adrenaline that was still going on, I just, I didn't want to, I don't think I wanted to panic because I didn't want to realize it was bad. So, uh, you know, I just kind of blocked it out. And I remember I walked back up to a uh, tracked vehicle and um, I got in with the rest of the wounded and they took us over to the cash to the, to the you hospital. Walked? Uh, I mean, I walked and, you know, had a couple of buddies kind of helped me, escorted me out. But uh, for the most part, yeah, I you know, walked myself out, um, got into the vehicle. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't like to be a burden on people, so I didn't really feel like I needed to do anyone's help at the time. There's still stuff being done. All right. So when you get medevaced out, you know, where do you end up going and, and what are you told? I mean, at this point, you know, you've been shot, but do you know the extent of your wounds? No, I just, when I got to the cash, the, the hospital, they, you know, they were kind of talking to me, but 
I think at that time I was kind of pulling, I remember fading in and out a little bit. So I didn't understand the severity of what was going on. I just knew I was injured. But uh, I do remember at that point was when uh, an 18 Delta uh, Special Forces Green Ray Medic came in and he was holding the scalpel. And uh, he was just like, hey, this this is going to hurt real bad. And I remember that's when he started putting my chest tube in. And, of course, from there, the, the sheer pain of it all was unbearable. And I, I, I passed out eventually from there. No morphine? They didn't give you any? Uh, I couldn't say if they did or not. I don't remember. If they, if they did, it didn't do a whole lot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. So it was, it was pretty painful. But... Uh, were you having trouble breathing? Because you said you were shot through the lung. You didn't know it at the time, but were you having trouble breathing? Could you tell the medics what was going on? No, I didn't. I didn't have a clue. I just, you know, I knew, I knew I was hurting, but I, I, not enough. Just the pain was just overall so bad that, you know, I couldn't couldn't really describe much at the time. You know, I think I was still still pretty much out of my mind a little bit at the time. All right, chest tube in. When do you actually get airlifted to a a cache? Um, so as, as I was, uh, as once you told me, you know, this is going to hurt, um, that was pretty much, I went out from there and then I don't remember much from there till I pretty much, um, I got to the States was, uh, was the last thing, the next thing I remember. I, really? Um, it, you don't wake uh, up yeah. in Germany at any point in time and realize where you are you don't, you, or you just don't remember it? Not much that I remember. I, I, I don't think I was awake much any if I was. All right. So let's get you to the States. Okay, you wake up in Walter Reed, I assume, uh, you know, and, and you get the full extent of what went on from who? Um, from one of the, the nurses. I, I, I remember I was being uh, wheeled off, and I remember being in such excruciating pain. I, I didn't know what was going on. I was trying to figure it all out at the time. Um, they finally, well, a nurse came in and started telling me about everything, about how lucky I had been. And, I, you know, hey, you're, you're really lucky to be alive. And, you know, I can't believe you made it out. Doctors are talking about you. To me, I'm sitting there just like, okay, I don't, I don't understand like what the big deal is. You know, like people get hurt, whatever. Um, so I, she was just telling me this, and she starts explaining to me the path of the bullet and everything. And I was just kind of, you know, I didn't understand medical stuff, but I was like, okay, you know, thank you. I guess I appreciate it. Um, and so. Eventually, they asked me if I'd do an interview, and I, you know, was like, okay, sure, I'll, you know, I'll do one. And, you know, they just kept saying, they're like, you know, you don't understand, like, you're, you're really, really lucky. This is this grazed by your major arteries. It barely missed your heart, you know, barely missed your spine, and, uh, you know, went through your lung. And just like, oh, okay. And so, uh, you know, I did the interview, and then they talked to my parents. Um, and, uh, you know, that was kind of when they, oh, slowly over time, I started really realizing, okay. I guess this was a big deal, and it was really close. So, now because of the injury, you said you got out. Did you did, did they medically retire you, or you chose to just get out? No, I, I went back, and you know the deployment finished up, and I you know worked on getting better, and uh, I eventually, at the time, a lot of my grandparents were sick, and they were getting they were passing away, and my my mom asked me to get out for a little bit. She just you know they were having a hard time, and you know I didn't feel like I already put them through enough and everything, so. I, you know, agreed. She said, give me one year as a civilian. If you don't like it, then I'll be totally okay and blessed with you going back. And so I did that at my mother's wish. And about a year to date, I was like, you know, I had started remembering all the things, the, the 18 Delta that had helped me, that all the guys that were still doing stuff, all the amazing things I'd seen. And I, I just, I missed it. I wanted to go back and continue serving my country. Do you remember that medic's name that saved your life? Uh, you know, I... I at one point, I uh, I actually ran into an eight, uh, another Green Beret who who said he had told me that that medic was t- would tell that story when he would teach his rotations for uh, other Green Berets, and but I, he didn't know his name either, and uh, I, I wish I could ever figure it out. Really? So you have no idea? Uh, no, sir. Do you remember what he looks like? Anything? No, <laughs> no, I don't. Wow. Everybody was a little bit different looking back then. Well, true, but I, I mean, something that you just a distinguishable characteristic, you know, in, in a hazy moment where you might have remembered something about him. Does it bother you? You yeah. don't know who it is? Um, you know, it, at first I was kind of like, I really want, really want to meet this guy. I really want to thank him. But, you know, I've really, uh, you know, I, once I became a Green Beret, I really learned that, you know, 
you don't really do it for the accolades. You don't do no, it for people but, to tell you. Um, and, you know, I just felt like he did his job. He was proud of doing his job. And, you know, and sometimes, uh, you know, I've learned I'm the same way at times, you know, and it's perfectly happy with that. I, I'm sure he's come across something about me before, and he knows that, you know, he, he saved my life, and I'm grateful for it. Yeah, but, I mean, again, I, I'm not – I'm not proposing that you want to meet him to give him accolades or, but you know, a simple thank you. I mean, I, I get it. Look, I, I deployed with the special forces, so I, I understand the community and what you're saying wholeheartedly. And I agree. You, you, you're never at this job looking for somebody to pin a medal on your chest to recognize your efforts. You do it because it's what you're supposed to do. But that said, you know, w- when you fight side by side with guys and you take care of each other, it's okay to give each other a hug in the end and say, thanks, brother. Glad you were with oh, me. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's that's kind of more where I'm asking the well, question for. If I, if I had the opportunity, yeah. Oh, I absolutely would. You know, I, I, if somebody was like, hey, I know that guy, I'd, I'd love to at least talk to him on the phone and tell him thank you for sure. I mean, I'm here today probably because solely because of him. So you have this year off. At any point during the year – did you come to the decision before the year was up that I'm going back? Like, did you know, or did you kind of just honestly get away from it mentally and go, I'm, I'm really going to give this civilian thing a try? Well, no, I, I mean, I got out. I, um, my, my father owned a construction business, and uh, so I was working for him and my brother. Um, you know, they were helping me. I was getting my feet settled. I had an apartment. I had my own place. Um, I had a great job. I dropped everything. You know, I had no issues settling back into civilian life. Um, I was truly, I was making more money than I ever made being in the military. Um, it just, it didn't make me happy at the end of the day. It just, uh, you know, it just wasn't, wasn't my calling in life. And, you know, I, so I still felt there was more for me to do. And, uh, just that ultimately, you know, I went home and I talked to my mom one day. I said, you know, I love what I'm doing. I'm thankful for everything you, you all have continued to do for me, but I, I think I need to go back and, and finish this out. And, you know, of course, she wasn't ultimately happy. Right. You know, she was she was happy for me that I found something, but you know, of course, she was scared. At any point in time during that year, are you having any medical problems whatsoever from your wounds? No, no, no. Uh, no, you know, I had to, uh, you know, I had to redo a physical and everything, and, and go back through the process to join again. So, um, no, I had no issues, and nor did anybody find any issues. Why'd you go? Did you go special forces just because of that medic, or and, and that the reason you went to the army? No desire to go back to the Marine Corps. Um, you know, the Marines have they they have their standards. You know, once you once you leave, um, they they weren't looking for anybody to return at the time. But honestly, uh, no, I, I I wanted to repay back that service. Um, you know, I mean, I just thought I didn't know guys like that existed at the time. You know, and I just thought, man, that that's crazy. That's awesome. You know. And, I really wanted to be that guy. I thought, you know, it was, it was amazing what he was giving back to not just his country, but his countrymen at the same time, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I, I just, I wanted to repay that exact service as best that I could. What was the hardest part about becoming a Green Beret that you think? <sighs> you know, I got, I got a lot of the, the typical answers I could give you, but my, my answer would honestly be is not letting everybody convince you that you couldn't do it. Yeah, all the horror stories of, uh, you know, that you're going to have to climb the biggest mountains in the world and everything else. It's just, you know, believing that every day has to end and there's always the next day. You know, everything is is doable if you just if you just put your head down and you you keep pushing through it and you believe in yourself. So what year is this when you get back in? Uh, 2006, summer of. Okay, 2006. Uh, Over the course of the next 11 years, how many times do you deploy? Um, about two, two officially to Iraq and then, uh, several others, just various places all over the globe. Okay. Um, and, and to that end, and uh, what I'm leading to is again, you know, your current situation, no other physical ailments, no other physical problems. You pass every medical physical along the way. Uh, yes, sir. Absolutely. I mean, I had to, there was yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I had to go to yeah, other schools that, you know, demand a physical you have to pass it. You got to be physically fit. No, no issues, and uh, to continue on. Yep. All right. I don't want to fast forward too much because I mean, obviously, there's critical stuff that goes on in between. Um, you know, over the course of these deployments that you're on, never any desire to get out. Always want to keep going. I mean, nothing happens that 
changes your mind or changes your scope of what you're doing? No, um, my, my career kept going. I was happy with it. Um, you know, there were still things I wanted to do. And actually, uh, you know, not like I said, not to fast forward too much, but the week before I had found out I was sick, um, I had, I was starting the warrant officer course. I was going to become a warrant officer, go back to a team. I had the next 15 years of my life planned out in the, wow. in the military. I planned on working till about 58, 60 had the you know, military kept me. That's amazing. Uh, but you do get married along the way somewhere in there, right? Oh, <laughs> uh, yes, sir. I, um, Married in uh, in 2006. So well, and, and I, I bring that up because your, your wife starts to play a critical role in, in helping you kind of figure out what's going on. Okay, I, again, it, there's so much to get to, but I mean, yeah. the crux of why this story is so important is because of what comes up in in June of 2017. So, when do you start to realize that you're having breathing issues? Uh, about January. Uh, well. The issue started occurring probably around March, April of 2017. Okay. Like what's happened? Just kind of give me some of the symptoms that you were experiencing. Yeah. So I, um, my first symptoms were I was wheezing, coughing, uh, just short of breath. I was having trouble laying flat. Uh, so I was starting to sleep kind of elevated. Those were the first uh, initial ones that were. Do you think you're just out. sick though? Do you think it's a cold? Do you think it's a cough? I, I mean, what are you initially thinking? Yeah. Well, you know, we hadn't lived in um, – North Carolina very long and uh, you know I do have allergies so I kind of thought um, you know this is just the time of the year that things are coming around so I wasn't wasn't thinking too much of it at the time just that I, yeah first you know, visit taking some Claritin. right first visit to a military doctor because of it was when um, May 15th okay May 15th went to the uh, ER I was at work and uh just wasn't wasn't feeling so great, and you know, it's the first time I probably could say, you know, I was sitting there just like, wow, I'm not not feeling the best. I should probably go get looked at. So I went down to their to their clinic where they treat um, students who are becoming Green Berets, and I uh, saw saw some help from the 18 Delta. And, you know, he's just looking at me, and I'm like, he's like, hey, you think you're all right? And I was like, yeah, you know, maybe I'm all right. You know, just being weird. And he's like, no, I don't, I don't think that you are. You know, he's like, I'm pretty good at my job. And I was like, all right, you know, I'm, I'm probably not doing so well. And so he, he was like, you know, go in here, lay down, do an EKG. He's like, let me let me check some stuff on you. And so shortly after that, he, he called an ambulance for me and sent me to the hospital. It's interesting. Did he try to give you a shot? Because my experience in deploying with them, there was a shot that cured every ailment from the Special Forces medics. It was just bend over, drop your pants, I'm going to put a needle on your backside, and everything was good an hour later. Like, honestly, it was the best form of medicine I ever experienced in my life. I want every visit to the doctor to be that. Here's a shot. You'll feel better in an hour. Great. So Yeah, no, no. He he, he really, um, you know, the medics are something else. They, they really look, look at you and make sure that they're uh, doing the best care now. You know, everybody wants longevity now rather than just a quick fix. So, uh, you know, I'm glad for what he did, that's for sure. All right, so he, he, they rush you to the hospital. What do they tell you at this point in time? Uh, at this point in time, they, they looked at my uh, scans from the past. They did have an x-ray on my chest, um, had me do a breathing treatment, and uh, told me it's possible I could have walking pneumonia. Uh, they didn't really say much other than that, and they, from there, just uh, discharged me. Okay, you get the day off, you go home, you get a week off. What do they give you? What do they tell you? Are you back to work the next day? Um, I went home. The, I just went home that day and uh, just kind of, you know, just took, took some rest and slept a little bit and tried to, tried to figure out if there was something else going on that maybe I was missing. Did you ever contemplate at this point in time, like just taking some time off, taking leave, getting away from anything just to sort of recharge? Well, I had been uh, kind of slowing down from where I was working because, like I said, I was getting ready for the, the warrant officer course. So I, I really wasn't going at such a fast pace mm-hmm. um, as one would think. I I'd actually was taking the, the necessary breaks because I knew once the course did start, I was in it for a while. Right. And the only reason I ask that, for those who don't know anything about the special forces lifestyle, if you will, it's, it's hard to find guys who know how to slow down. You know, it's just it's yeah. it's the nature of the work. It's who, it's the way you guys are cut, the mold that you're cut from, you know, that's dynamically different than most people. You, you have that different gear. So I was just curious yeah. if you ever, you know, were just like, nope, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going, you know, because this is what I'm supposed to do. My team needs me and everything else. So 
Okay, so you're discharged from the hospital. Next visit back is when? May 22nd, one week later. Okay, one week later. What happens? Uh, so this time I was at work and I called my wife and uh, was, it was the same thing except a little bit worse. Now, you know, my, my vision's getting a little blurry and I'm, I'm having trouble breathing. I'm feeling, you know, just not right. And so I, I called my wife. I was calling everybody trying to figure out what, you know, what do I do? Uh, so I went to work, talked to my chain of command just to see what their thoughts were. Um, and at this point, the, you know, everybody's looking at me again, just like, man, are you okay? And I'm like, no, I, you know, I really don't think I'm doing okay this time. Um, and this time I was, you know, kind of hunched over on, on like a file cabinet. really just having a little bit more trouble. So this time they, they put me in my car and drove me out in town uh, to, to an ER out in town. Um to see, you know, they figured, you know, I wasn't getting the, the care that I should have been getting on post. So they sent me out there. Uh, this time, I, by the time I got there, my wife was there. I was pretty much hunched over, passed out. They, they picked me up, put me in a wheelchair, took me into the hospital. And then eventually there, I, I pretty much was unresponsive. I was just unconscious. And uh, so according to my wife, you know, they did the old sternum rub on me with the knuckles and got me to come to and then I was awake from there and did went through some work tests from there. Uh, breathing treatment again. This time I did an echocardiogram, did uh, x-rays again, and still still nothing to be found. And there is no thought whatsoever that you're telling, hey, by the way, I was shot in the lung, you know, a dozen years ago. Do you think it has anything to do with that? Did that ever come up? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, we bring it up all the time, you know, trying to divulge everything. I mean, at this point, I'm I'm generally concerned because, you know, this isn't, this isn't something normal that I experience or have experienced. You know, I mean, like you said, you know, typically when you're doing this line of work, you're physically fit and you're pretty in tune with your body and you know when things are off, but you know, I don't, I don't sugarcoat things. When I go to the doctor, so I don't like to be there. So I turn to divulge, you know, hey, I've been shot or I've had this injury. So, you know, we can play it out and come to a conclusion. All right, so after this visit and all these tests, what are they telling you? Everything is still fine? Same thing. You know, it's just possibility of uh, pneumonia? pneumonia, nothing nothing new. Uh, they couldn't figure it out, so they discharged me from there. The civilian hospital discharged you? Uh, yes, sir. Okay, what happens next? Uh, from there, you know, I was waiting. Uh, I had an appointment for a specialist that had been scheduled for me from the uh, the doctor on post, but now I, you know, in between waiting um, and seeing this doctor, I ended up starting cough to cough to blood at this point. Was, it was started off slowly. It was just a little bit here and there, and then it, it by the time it really got to the the height of it all, you know, I was, I mean, not to get too graphic here, but I mean, I was coughing it up in globs. It just, just, I couldn't even sleep flat because I felt like I was being, I was drowning with with blood. Um, so I, I had to sit up and, you know, there wasn't much I could do, but just kind of try to stay calm and just work through it. So eventually I had to go to my chain of command who was asking me, you know, is everything going all right? Are you getting the help you need? And I was like, no, you know, I'm not. I, I really need to be seen by a specialist. I'm calling everybody. I'm, I'm calling all the health care providers. I'm calling the specialists. I'm begging for help. Um, I keep getting told, just go to the ER, you know, got to wait you just got to keep waiting for your appointment so my commander went down to the hospital talked to the specialist specialist finally agreed he's like all right you can go off post um so he released me to go off post and then i went and scheduled an appointment out in town with a, a civilian provider and they tell you what um so at this point i you know i take my records down they look through a couple and then they call me back right right away they're like hey we need more stuff and i'm like oh okay so I bring them everything I got. Um, they they get me in there within a couple of days. I, I was in there quick. I mean, before I knew it, I go in. I do. Um, they did a breathing test again. I see the doctor. The doctor. One of the last questions he asked me is like, "Hey, have you been bleeding?" And I was like, "I have." He's like, "All right, you need to go downstairs right now and do a scan." Uh, do, and he's like, "I'll call you." So I do the scan. I go home. And he called me about the next day, and he's like, "All right, I, there's there's." Something funny there, and I need you to come in for a biopsy. It's like, if I could get you in tomorrow, I'd have you in tomorrow, but, you know, it'll be like two or three days. Uh, so from there, I, I go in, 
I do a you know outpatient biopsy, and I, I wake up and you know my wife's crying, and you know the doctor's telling me I have uh, at the time stage three lung a or stage three a lung cancer. All right, you hear the word cancer, and you ask us if anybody it doesn't have to be a veteran or a military member. What goes through your head? Um. I didn't know what to think at the time. It was kind of just disbelief, you know. It was, uh, it was kind of unreal. I didn't never thought, you know, I tried to stay healthy my whole life. You know, I wasn't the best at it, but I wasn't the worst at it for sure. Um, so it was just kind of a shock, you know. It was just like felt like somebody was lying to you almost. You know, I can't imagine, and I'm a very healthy guy. I work out all the time still. This, what you're going through is like my worst fear, that one day you wake up out of the blue and everything goes horribly wrong. You find out you have cancer or something that, you know, is possibly going to take your life. Is there any sense of how the hell did I survive what I survived in a gunshot wound and now I have cancer? Oh, absolutely. You know, but, uh, you know, to, to kind of rewind a little bit, the, the troubling part about all this is um, before my symptoms ever started in January of 2017, I was get, actually getting ready to go to dive school. Uh, that was when I had done my, I had done my physical and it was mandatory because of my injury that I had to do a CT scan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. Had to do the CT scan to go down there. To check and your lungs, to, to make sure that, we, well, yeah. just for clarity for people who, when you die, you know, it, diving puts a lot of pressure on your lungs, especially the way the military does it. Sometimes it's straight, you know, diving and, and your lungs get, you know, pressurized because of the lack of oxygen and everything. And so they're doing this test to make sure the capacity of your lungs is good. Correct. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, and and uh, so the, the troubling part is, is that when they cleared me in, in January of 2017, the mass was there. The mass was on my chest in 2017. How did they know? Was, wait, wait, how did you know that? I'm sorry to cut you off. I'm just trying to figure out. The, oh, no. Um, well, when you go, you can go back and look at the scans dated from then. And it, oh, okay. So they looked back at the film and they saw that this thing was there since then. Yep. So okay. it was right. there from then. And, um, it was also, it was noticed, and I mean, it was noticed, documented, and everything, even on my first ER trip to the hospital on post. They documented it? Yes, sir. Wow. So that, that's where all this really comes into play. Is that six months I went untreated, and nobody ever told me about it. They knew about it. Okay. Does the doctor who diagnoses you with the cancer, do they think at any point in time this is because... I mean, can you get cancer from a gunshot wound, or are the two things totally unrelated? Hey, no, I'm not a doctor. I wouldn't be qualified to answer that. Okay, yeah, fair enough. That's, I mean, okay. Uh, is do, do any of the doctors ever bring up that there may be a correlation, or no? That's never even b- talked about. No, okay. never, never even, uh, never even discussed. Right. Okay. And, and again, I'm just trying to ascertain from my own kind of understanding yeah. if there's any way that that one led to the other. I mean, it doesn't seem, again, I'm not a doctor either. Uh, and, you know, again, we'll defer to Natalie or, or Laura on the line in a minute, but, you know, I, I just, I didn't know if there was any way to figure out if, if one resulted in the other. Okay, so let's kind of, uh, before we bring in Natalie and the legal stuff, because I want to find out when you bring her in on this whole thing. Um, you have this diagnosis. You realize that it has been misdiagnosed several times over. What are you telling your chain of command? What are people around you saying? What is the, the military saying to you? Is any of that, any of these conversations starting yet? No, not at, not at the time. You know, uh, you, you know, we were still going through all the medical stuff. You know, they, they wanted to know if I was ever a smoker. You know, no, I've never smoked. You know, they wanted to know if I, um, you know, ever been around it all the time. And it was, you know, no. So it, the concern at the time was just figuring out, what to do next, you know? So that was the biggest concern. So it was just talking to the doctors, you know, I'd go up to Duke and, um, you know, the discussion was, all right, we're going to do chemo. We're going to try to try to, you know, kill it as best we can and take care of it with surgery and remove it. Um, so, you know, that was, that was really the big focus. Uh, my chain of command was extremely supportive. They've, they've been amazing to this whole thing. So they just, you know, Hey, anything you need, Rich, we, we got you here. So I just went on from there. Um, at the time, we really hadn't uh, discussed a whole lot with Natalie. It okay. was just about health. Do, do you do you have a prognosis of how long you're going to live? Do they tell you this? My, my prognosis is pretty much just keep taking the medicine you're on right now, and it stops. We'll we'll see what we can do. 
So it's, uh, you know, with cancer, it's, it's tricky. It's, you know, it, my medicine, it's not today, you know, and I could have very, very, very short time, you know, but that's, you know, I don't think anybody can predict, predict that, but God himself. Right. Okay. All right. I just didn't know if they gave you, Hey, you know, we're, we're at stage three. Yeah. Here. I mean, the, in, in general, the, the prognosis is just not very good. I yeah, guess more obviously. or less, I, I, I hate saying it, you know, so mm-hmm. maybe that's why I'm dancing around it just a little bit here. No, that's, and that's fair. Listen, I mean, you know, God bless you. I mean, you know, I, I hope you, you know, the, the, whatever the prognosis was, you beat it like you have everything else so far. So, all right. Um, at what point in time do, or does the idea of a lawsuit come up or, you know, do you ever get to the, well, does your wife say to you, well, can't we fight this somehow? I mean, they screwed this up. Don't they owe us something? Well, so how it kind of came up was, uh, you know, my wife and I, you know, more her than me, if, if anything, uh, you know, she was just looking through my medical records, the, the papers that they give us when we leave the hospital and, you know, nothing started, nothing looked right. Everything, nothing added up. It was like, well, how come it says this? But they didn't know about, supposedly didn't know about it, or why didn't anybody tell me, but it says it right here. Um, so nothing made sense. So we started asking questions. Um, before we knew it, we, we kind of put the pieces together, and it was like, oh, my gosh, they knew. They just never told me. So, you know, of course, people, everybody's like, oh, I'll sue them. You know, everybody throws out that. Right. <laughs> so I was like, okay, you know, I'm so angry at this point. You know, I'm like, oh, you're, you know. I had all this chance of survival, my, you know, what are you doing to my family, my career, my life? So the more I started looking into it, it was like roadblock after roadblock. It was like nobody nobody would touch me. Nobody wanted to talk about it. And then it was like every legal person I talked to was just like, you can't do this. And I'm like, why? They're like, you just can't. You know, like, okay, that doesn't make any sense. You know, so I, we just kept asking questions. And it just got to the point where it was like, how can you tell me? You cannot tell somebody about their cancer, and that's perfectly okay and acceptable. You know, and in a world that we say people are accountable for their actions and, and everything else, and uh, it just didn't sit well with me. And before I knew it, you know, my mom was like, "Hey, I reached out to these people because uh, we had been, my wife had been calling attorney after attorney, and they once they heard I was active duty, they were like, pretty much might as well have hung up the phone on it. Nobody wanted to even talk to us." Uh, so my mom was like, Hey, we're going to, you know, they're going to call us. We're going to, we'll, we'll talk to them. And I was like, yeah, sure. Okay. You know, nobody cares. Nobody's going to listen as usual. Um, so I got on the phone. I, I probably, you know, gave them a, a half story just cause I was like, uh, wasting my time here. Um, before I knew it, Natalie's in the background, like, all right, what are we going to do about this? How are we going to fix this? This isn't right. And I was like, Oh, maybe there's a slim chance. And before I knew it, it was, we were getting phone calls. It was emails, and they were following through. And it was like, wow, somebody's actually going to listen to us. Somebody's actually hears that this is not correct and this is not just. Um, and that's kind of where, and then it just kind of spiraled from there. And here we are today. One more question, Rich. Yeah. How angry are you at all of this? I mean, at what point in time do you, do you break down? Do you? Do you I mean, because it's got to be infuriating. To know that uh, you know, that doctor after doctor misses, it's like you know what the hell we're supposed to be the finest at what we do in America, right? I mean, that's, that's what the military is, yeah. and and the fact that so many people miss this, are, are, you, are you angry? Uh, I, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't angry to some degree, but uh, I was angrier in the beginning for sure. But you know, I like anybody kind of could contest. You know, anger doesn't get you anywhere. It's the cool, calm, and collected thoughts and and decisive planning that gets you somewhere, you know, and I've, I've tried my best to keep it at that because that's, that's what's going to get the job done at the end of the day, not me just beating on walls and throwing things around and throwing tantr- temper tantrums. You know, it's, you know, I'm angry. Don't, don't get me wrong, but uh, there's a time and place for it. And right now I'm just, I'm trying to do the, the right time, the right place and just keep that set aside. You know? All right. Let's bring in again, Natalie Kawam. She's your attorney. Um, Natalie, uh, I don't know. Had you known about the Ferris Doctrine prior to looking at Richard's case? And again, for those who don't know, uh, the Ferris Doctrine, it's, it's about a 60-year-old policy that basically says for people who are in the military, you're not allowed to sue the government. That's, that's the long and the short of it. But, but were you aware of this, and, and did that deter you at all? Uh, no, I wasn't aware of it. I heard about it before. Um, you know, I, I, I practice in federal court, so I remember hearing Ferris Doctrine before – 
um, but never really looked into it. And um, when I was told that nobody will take this case, um, when he said, you know, nobody wants to take this case because of the first doctrine, I just thought, like, that's just a stupid reason. Uh, you know, cause we can, I, know that, I know that should be, like, blatantly, like, an obvious reason, but I don't back down that easily. I was very upset about this. Uh, so I thought, well, we've got to fix this, you know, and he has to be made whole. Um, and then when I looked into it, I just thought it was – the more I looked into it, the more I was convinced that it was just a bad law. So um, – when we pursued it, you know, everybody started counting. You know, I'm, I, I, I like to, I, I like to check my facts a lot, and I started realizing that this happens a lot. Um, when I spoke to some attorneys around the country that specialize in military and veterans law, um, they said, "Yes, yeah, stay away from this case. It's a loser," and that even made me more upset. Um, so that that fuel became this fire. Now this bonfire that we have going on, um, and I looked at it as Three parts. We not awareness is so important, so essential that people aren't aware of something until it happens to them. You know, just like with cancer, just like with you know divorce, and you know bad things happen. Then you learn about it, but it's too late when you learn about it. Um, so one of those things is I wanted to make sure that we get the word out with what this Ferris doctrine is and how unfair it is, because there's not a person in the world, at least that has a pulse, that would say that's a great idea, that's a great law. Let's bar people from being able to made whole number two looked at it as this is something that we need to fight anyhow so we're going to court you know we filed it um and our, our our argument is that hey it's discriminatory you know anyone can sue in the united states of america uh illegals can sue for malpractice inmates can sue for malpractice everyone but our own military our own active members that served and protect our country like so that's just the ironies that we enjoy the freedoms that they give us but ironically they don't have the same freedoms well, that and, we've given i'm sorry and part of the reason i was questioning before if any doctor had made the correlation is because that's part of what the ferris doctrine is it's injuries sustained due to result of military service and and I, I don't know. Again, I'll leave the legal expertise to you, but that's why I was trying to make that connection. If that's what they're saying is that the bullet wound caused the cancer and here we are. Is that a defense that they're going to try to apply? It's, well, you, you're asking the right question. Unfortunately, no one has the right answer because this wasn't um, through. This was not. OK, for the let's just back up for the first doctrine. It's supposed to be. Uh, any kind of injury sustained in combat or service related. Right. There's no, there's no combat at Wilmac Hospital. I mean, probably the only combat they have going on is can they stop malpracticing on people? That's my only, the combat that's going on there. Number two, uh, there is no incident to service here. This is not, this was a typical physical checkup he had, you know, like one of those annual okay. physicals so that he it- had to do to, to, you know, to continue service. So the first so doctrine not, it might not even apply in that case, right? That's correct. But okay. unfortunately, this is the problem. Unfortunately, we're seeing cases by cases. By the way, this is not just Richard's case. I just want everyone to know that. I, I'd love for it to be just Richard's case, but it's not. This is happening all over the country to our servicemen and women. That's why we need to change this law. It's one thing if it's like an isolated incident and happened to Richard and God, he got screwed too bad, you know, good luck. No, this is happening everywhere. I'm getting phone calls from everyone all over the country. And I'm, I'm sitting there going, God, I cannot believe that they're applying this law that doesn't apply. You know, I mean, I'm talking about uh, people who are breastfeeding. That has nothing to do with service that they're causing. Um, they, they're, they're saying, don't worry about it. This is, let's put it this way. I, this Ferris doctrine barring is being misapplied and it's, it's not correct. So that's why we're challenging it for two reasons. If the courts keep on holding the, this issue is if you're just in if you're in uniform, then you're barred. That's what essentially they're doing. Even though the law may say one thing, they're applying it broadly to all people that are in service from being able to pursue a claim against the government. When you filed this in court, uh, what was the immediate response from the government? It's barred from fire doctrine. But that <laughs> I mean, was that was it. Yeah, that's what they're saying. They're, they're I mean, I want to say that they didn't say that. That's what I'm saying. They're, they're misapplying this this law. But it's a bigger issue than that. Let's just say this. Let's just pretend and give them the argument that this this happened in, uh, in when he was, you know, from the bullet getting poisoned or something from the bullet. It's 
doesn't make sense why a doctor, this was not this, when you're going in there, I understand if you have an injury, you know, you're shot in the leg and uh, it's the middle of combat and they use a tourniquet and, um, you know, accidentally they have to amputate his leg because, you know, it could have easily been surgically removed, but they messed up. I get that. You want to bar those kind of malpractice claims because it's in combat. It's, you know, an emergency situation. But we're talking about our military that are being, um, that are being treated on U.S. soil, in hospitals, not in combat. So there's an issue with this. It's not, this was not foreseeable. He didn't sign up to go into the military to say, hey, look, if I ever get malpractice on, I want to be able to be barred from being able to pursue a claim. Well, it's not about the claim here. It's about equal rights. He did not sign up to service so that way some inept doctor didn't do his job. And when they saw the, the cancer, they didn't tell him. That, that's a that's gross malpractice. That's practically manslaughter. So we have an issue here. Somebody's not only are we losing our, our soldiers, we're losing a hero here. And what are we doing? We're protecting the malpractitioners. It doesn't make sense. There's no there's there's no equity here. It doesn't make sense. So what we're doing, in addition to following the claim. We're also going to Congress and we're asking Congress to do this bill so that way we fix the law, just like anything else in the world that we have. You know, one time they used to say separate is equal and black people had to be in the back of the bus and, and people say, well, that's the law. Well, yeah, the law sucks at times. And sometimes we've got to change the law because it's not fair. We learned that through gay marriages. We learned that through so many issues out there that we've reversed the law. So this is one of those laws that just doesn't make sense or it's unfair and it needs to be reversed. And that's why we're going to Congress to write this law, to, to write this wrong, basically. What do you feel is more likely to happen, this case to see a courtroom or to Congress make a change to the doctrine first? I, I think Congress. I believe in it. I believe it. I hate to say it, but it takes an act of Congress. It really does. Because the courts have held, and I hate to get too legal on you, but Scalia years ago when he was alive wrote a dissent and said, this is not how it should be. You know, we shouldn't be barring our servicemen and women from being able to be made whole or, you know, have a recourse. However, we're a court. We don't write the law. We just interpret it. And right. if we're interpreting it differently or wrongly, then that's Congress's job, you know, legislation, to do legislation to fix this. And that's what we're doing. Richard, I want to bring you back in here for a moment. Um, you know, the fact that Natalie took this case, what does it mean to you? Um, it means a lot. You know, it's uh, it's it's uh, it's almost hard hard to put in words. It's you know, not, not only it has been amazing, you know, the, the sheer fact that anybody's just listening to us and, and believed in us, uh, you know, at, at a time where everybody just said, no, oh, you can't do this, go away. Uh, yeah, I, I almost just lose words for it all, to be honest. What, Richard, what is your, your, your hope level for this whole thing? I mean, is it one of those things where, at a minimum, if you can get the Ferris Doctrine changed, do you feel like you've done your part, or is there some grander, bigger thing that you're hoping for? I mean, outside of your health, obviously, and I, I, please, I don't mean to, you know, put that yeah. aside. That is obviously the most important thing here. But, you know, that aside, which, you know, sometimes you can't control the outcome of what's going on with your health, you have a little bit of say in, in how this whole thing plays out on the litigious side. So wh wh what is your hope for that? You know, my, my hope is the same. I, I, I believe Congress, I, I believe it'll take place in a legislative review. Um, I, I do have hopes. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's times where I'm like, oh man, this is just, I mean, this is a different animal. You know, this is something I, I never trained for this. You know, this was not, not something I would have thought I'd ever be doing. Um, you know, and, and, and luckily Natalie is, is, is driving this train a lot and I'm thankful for it, but uh, I, I believe it's going to work. You know, I, I, I believe they're going to see an issue. I believe this is the right time. This is the right, time and place with, within our society that people are going to see this as unjust. They're going to see it's unfair. Uh, they're just going to see it's just downright. This is not the way things work. Um, so I, I have a lot of hopes and it, it means a lot to me. It means a lot that, you know, this isn't just about me. This, I mean, this is an old law that's been going around for almost 70 years. I mean, the amount of people that it's caused harm to is what's unjust about it. And the fact 
that it could continue to cause harm. You know, and, and that's that's what that's what's driving me to fix this. Okay, so where it, both of you can answer this, Natalie, I'll start with you. Where 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 is everything right now from a legal standpoint? Well, so we received the um, the government's response saying it's barred by the first doctrine. We're going to be filing in federal court um, in the Eastern District of North Carolina. Um, we're looking to pursue, uh, you know, um, doing some kind of writ to the Supreme Court to review this based on this law is discriminatory in effect. And um, uh, tell me if you want me to get legal about it or not. But No, go ahead. I mean, give, um, it, give it in legal terms. If I have questions, I'll ask. Okay. So, <laughs> So an application of a law, when when a law is applied, it has to be reviewed as whether it's discriminatory or not. Like it's to say black people can't vote. That's discrimination on its face. You know, we can't um, isolate one protected class. Well, this doesn't say anything about black, white, age or anything. But what it does do is, in effect, it basically bars only one protected group of people from being able to pursue a claim of malpractice. Only one set of people, and that are active service members. So that basically means if you wake up in the morning and you zipper your uniform, you are no, you have no rights that everyone else has. So it isolates or distinguishes or picks out a certain group of people that cannot have the same rights as everyone else in the country. So, for example, I used to work at the Department of Health and Human Services. If they ever done anything to me or hurt me, I would have a right to pursue a claim against them, even though I work for the government. Why is it that this is the only branch, this is the only people that cannot pursue a claim against their employer? It's discriminatory in effect. Um, you know, there used to be years ago, they used to say um, there was a law that said you have to take a test to vote. And what happened was they challenged that law and they said it's discriminatory. And you say, how is that possible? How is it discriminatory? Well, what they were saying was it's discriminatory against minorities because the minorities are usually going to be the ones who actually end up failing the test and are not going to be able to vote. So in effect, it discriminates against a certain population of people. So here um, our argument is this law isolates and, and just bars a certain class of people. Everyone else can sue. Inmates can sue, like I said, immigrants, illegals. Uh, it doesn't matter. It's just the only people who cannot are service members. And that's where we challenge the application of this law and why it just bars certain people. There's no rhyme or reason why you're barring someone from being able to pursue a claim of malpractice. And it's being over broadly applied. So, so it, there it, it is. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Natalie. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. That's it. No, so in short, then, you're basically waiting for a federal judge to rule on whether the application of the Ferris doctors applies to Richard's case. That's right. They, they okay. already said it does. I mean, the, how about this? The government's answer was this is barred by the Ferris Doctrine. So it's going to go through the same process that all these other Ferris Doctrine cases are going through, which one of them went to the Ninth Circuit and they said, hey, if there's a reason why um, it should be changed, it's now. Um, and they said, but sorry, you know, the Ferris Doctrine bars you. Take the Supreme Court. Um, problem is that this has happened so many times over and over. This these cases are always challenged and always, unfortunately, lose. That's why we're looking at Congress to change this, fix this situation for our service members. And we're also arguing that, in, you know, if I'm going to use two forums, I'm going to use the legislative process and I'm going to use the legal process. I hope that the legal process fixes it and says, yeah, this is a discriminatory law. We're going to get rid of it. But other than that, we are very hopeful for the uh, for the Congress to do something because Everyone we spoke with and everyone we visited with was very supportive of this. There's no one that's going to say, yeah, I think our service members uh, should suffer from malpractice and also be barred from being able to pursue a claim or be made whole. There's no, not right to bar someone from being able to seek recourse. So just so I'm clear, do you need Congress to pivot on the Ferris Doctrine in order for the case to go forward? It's not to, for the case to go forward. It's for fixing the case for others. Okay. Um, like we can we can pull the we can push the case to go forward, which we're doing. It's just that what's going to happen is, unfortunately, I have a feeling that they're going to say, just like the Supreme Court did before, you know what? If Congress thinks that this is incorrect or if this, the law is not correct, because it basically it doesn't stem from the Ferris. It stems from the. If I'm really going to make it complicated for you, the Federal Tort Claims Act. The Federal Tort Claims Act says that there's one exception of people who cannot pursue a claim against the government, and those are people who are who are active military. So if Congress wants to fix it, they can fix it. That's what Scalia said. 
And so that's what we're looking to do. We're looking for Congress to fix it. And we're also looking for the courts to also find that it's also unconstitutional and discriminatory in effect. Let me just play devil's advocate here for a moment. Um, and, and Richard, weigh in on this as well. Everybody knows who signs up for the military that you can't sue the government because they tell you like, you know, it, it, it's it's a commonly known fact. And so from that end, there's a part of me as somebody who still wears the uniform for coming up on 20 years. And, and again, I understand it's malpractice, but you kind of know this is the risk you're taking going in that if something goes wrong, you don't have much recourse. So from that end, I mean, how do you balance that out? Can I answer that? Sure. Go ahead. Yeah. So that statement of I knew going into this that, you know, uh, you're not allowed to sue the government. That's kind of one of those. um, We know going into this as a black person that we have to sit in the back of the bus because that's the law. That's not an answer. You know, I understand the law is the law, but that doesn't mean the law is right or the law is fair or the law is just. So I understand that you can walk in there going, okay, well, that's the law, just like, you know, many other laws, you know, black people can marry white people. There was a case called Love vs. Love. There's many laws out there that are not fair, and that's why they need to be fixed or challenged and reversed. Richard, I mean, when I say that, has, has anybody, have you heard that from anybody before? You knew what, you knew what the deal was going in? Well, yeah, nonstop. I, I've heard that, but the, you know, and I agree wholeheartedly with Natalie, and my, my thing is this, too, is, you know, it's not just me that it's happening to, you know, it's ha- it happens to family members, you know, and that's the other side of this too. That's very important to me is that they're all, they're all applied to this. So every person who's, who's a dependent underneath a service member is applied to this, this law, you know, in, in most cases. So it's, a, so how does that make it fair to them? It, you know, so it's, it's not just because that law was there and it was put there a long time ago does not mean that's the same society we live in today. And I think it's worth being revisited and and challenged. Okay. Uh, Richard, let's get back to your health for a minute. Where are you right now? What is the current situation? Uh, Currently right now, I'm I'm stage four. So I'm I'm terminally ill, uh, palliative care. Um, I take, uh, I just went through uh, radiation last year for a tumor that was still growing. Uh, it's caused me quite a bit of pain, so I had to have some markers put in, got sick from that, uh, ended up in the hospital. Um, that's finally a little bit under control, but I take chemo pills twice a day, um, and I, like I said, I just kind of sit and wait until they, until they run out or don't work and go from there. Now, you're still on active duty. Are you going to work every day, or are you just kind of, they're allowing you to kind of stay home? Um, you know, in the beginning, I, everybody was like, ah, oh, you know, come to work. It'd be great for the mental. And, uh, you know, I would be lying if I said I didn't enjoy the break. It was kind of nice, uh, for what it's worth. But really up until now, I just kind of started, um, venturing back here and there more. Um, beforehand, I, I really couldn't. I was between just being sick from any treatment or in excruciating amounts of pain. It was just, it was too hard before. So now, now I'm kind of at a semi-state to where I could, it's manageable to, to get back up out of the house a little bit. So I'm trying. What do your teammates say when you see them and talk to them? Um, mostly they're, they're just glad to see me there. You know, it's, uh, I think it helps bring smiles to everybody's faces to include my own. You know, that, you know, you keep pushing through and you're just, you keep fighting, you know, but, you know, these are, these are, these are guys I've been with for a long time now and, uh, you know, I, I think we just appreciate everybody's company daily. I, 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 I pause and I sigh because I just uh, – the totality of this kind of gets to me from the standpoint of and, – and look, I'll just relate to you man to man and, and father to father. I mean, there's so much more on the line here than just a lawsuit for you. Um, you know, your kids and, and your wife and everything that goes on. Um, you, you've faced your own mortality before. Is it different – in this arena when it's cancer and not combat? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely different. Um, you know, one, one I knew I signed up for and one I can say, honestly, I didn't sign up for it, you know? Right. Um, you know, you know, my other thing is, is, you know, we, we've been at, we've been at this war for how long, 
you know, and, and it's, it's, it's going on. And to say that we, we don't deserve the best medical care, if not just standard medical care as everybody else and, and the same treatment, um, you know, that, that hurts more than, than any wound I can sustain or suffer downrange any time of the day to me, you know, and then, uh, you know, I think, I think a lot of guys were in a lot of, you know, service members would agree, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a relief lifted off their minds when they're downrange to know, you know, their families are getting, you know, great medical care, if not the same medical care as everybody else across the country. Um, you know, that's, that's one other thing you don't want to have to think about when you're over there making decisions, right. you know, you know, they're based off of your life or everybody else's life, you know, and, uh, you know, medical is a, it's a big thing now, you know, I say, you know, guys are a long lasting, long time war. It's, it's something we need and something we, we, we have to have to keep going on. And, uh, so I think good standard medical care is something that's deserving. How do you deal with the tough days? How do you deal with the days where it, it, it feels overwhelming? Um, you know, I, I typically, I actually had a day not too long ago where I, it, my limits were reached. Um, I kind of lost it, but I just got to, got to step back sometimes and lick my wounds and, and kind of regroup and get my composure back. You know, it's, uh, it's not easy definitely figuring this one out. You know, nobody, nobody trained me for this one. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's a tough one. You know, I, my wife and I, we talk, we talk every day, you know, we've, we've definitely become a lot closer through this. Um, not the way you want to become close to your wife, but, uh, we know we've, we've become truly the best friends that we, we we've always thought we were. Um, so it's, it's, I lean on her a lot and, uh, my kids, I lean on them all the time too. When I have bad days, I, I'll go in and just sit with them and, you know, hold them and talk to them. And it's funny when they give me their advice, you know, on how to get through things. So, you know, listening to a 10 year old and 12 year old talk to me, how to get through the days is, is always going to bring a smile to your face. Uh, Natalie, one final question for you. Um, legal things tend to take a really, really long time. Um, you know, I, I, I want to put this question delicately, but, this may take longer than what Richard may be around to see. How entrenched are you in this fight? Well, you know, um, I'm working on this 25-8. You know, it's not even, this has just become literally my my sole um, purpose at this point. I've put all, everything aside and just been focusing on this um, because I believe in it. And I believe that Richard should be able to see the fruit of his labor. Um, I think it'll happen uh, sooner than later. Um, you can ask Richard. It's always like now, yesterday I wanted it, that kind of thing. Um, so I don't, I, I'm not taking no for an answer from anyone. And we just keep pushing forward. And I believe it'll, I, I believe this will all come together fairly soon. I just think the most important thing that we're doing here, and that includes you, sir, is helping us get the word out because I think the awareness is the most important part. And when people are aware of things, many people in America don't stand by and let injustices happen. We all speak up on so many issues in life. So these are one of those issues that we need to bring awareness to so we can fix it. Richard, do you hope this is part of your legacy? Absolutely. You know, I just, uh, I, I do. I, I really do. In short, yeah. I mean, I, I'm I'm getting emotional just because I, you know, as we start to talk more, the whole thing. Welcome to the welcome to the club. Yeah, the, I mean, the whole thing starts to get to me, man. I mean, I, I just God, I I wish I was could throw my arms around your brother and just give you a freaking hug because. I appreciate it. I mean, this is this is a lot, man. No one deserves this. Um, and you know, all respect to what Natalie's doing aside, you know, the, the the legal part of this to me is secondary to watching a brother go through all this um, undeservedly. Um, and and you know, I, I just you know, I just wish I, I wish I feel helpless. I wish there was something I could do. You know, I, I don't know how to kind of put a bow on this whole thing in any sort of positive way. And I don't really think I should try at this point, but I just, you know, brother to brother, I, I'm, I'm praying for you. Um, you know, without knowing you, I love you. And, and I, and I really wish that, that there is some sort of, 
silver lining and happy ending to this for you, for your family, um, for your legacy, for everything, Richard. I, I truly do, man. I really mean that. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Wow. Uh, one of the one of the heavier episodes we've done. Uh, Natalie Kwam, thank you so much for being here and joining us because getting this side of it was so, so important. And Richard, uh, please do everything you can to get well, stay well, keep your spirits up always. I know everybody listening to this is, is going to be praying for you and going to be on your side. And um, we, we hope that, you know, whatever the medical prognosis and diagnosis is, that it starts to turn in your favor sooner rather than later for you, for your family, for your children, everything going forward. So, Richard Stay School, Natalie Kalam, thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. One postscript note uh, before we sign off. Natalie Kawam, Richard's lawyer, wanted to remind us to send you guys to ferrisdoctrine.com. That's F-E-R-E-S doctrine.com. Go there, read more about Richard's story, and also sign the petition to change the Ferris Doctrine if you are so inclined. Again, ferrisdoctrine.com. Thank you guys for listening to this very, very important story, and we'll talk to you next week on The Hazard Ground. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. With MailChimp, you get a whole lot more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. That means you can connect your data to make more informed, smarter decisions. And you get powerful automation tools like our customer journey builder to ensure you never miss an opportunity to turn shoppers into loyal customers. So if you're ready to integrate your marketing and boost sales, get started today at MailChimp.com smartmarketing MailChimp, built for growing businesses.